So tonight's guest, um, I am very honored to have on. He is a well-known voice in the Monero and privacy community. He is also the host of the Opt Out podcast. Everybody, welcome Seth for privacy. How you doing, man? Hey, Jacob, doing pretty well. Thanks for, for having me on. Always excited to get the chance to, to talk about personal privacy, talk about Monero, talk about how those things ultimately enable freedom. So looking forward to it. Yeah, it's great. Um, so let's just jump right into it. Um, I'm pretty much going with uh, the aspect that anyone listening to this pretty much has the idea of what Monero or at least uh, what cryptocurrency is. Um, so from that, do you want to basically give a rundown of like what makes Monero so different than Bitcoin, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, and any of these other projects? Yeah, yeah. So I, I know this is Monero part two, so I'm not sure how much you, you've covered in the past on your show. Um, but Monero is, is really simply can be thought about as digital cash. Um, it takes a lot of the same building blocks as Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Really, Bitcoin is kind of the main main thing to compare it to. Um, it's very decentralized like Bitcoin. Uh, it's, it's proof of work mined like Bitcoin where anyone can can start mining Monero even easier since it's actually CPU mined, so any computer can mine Monero. Um, and ultimately, what Monero does is it, it tries to take this this idea of uh, self-sovereignty and financial freedom really to another level from Bitcoin by adding in default privacy for everybody who uses it. Um, so ultimately, the thing that you have, the, the money that you have, the property that you have, uh, you can only do with it what you're allowed to do with it. Um, in many societies, we're not very free to do whatever we want. Um, and ultimately, privacy is a, a, a key to unlocking the ability to, to censorship resistance, the, the access to doing what we want with our funds, um, paying who we want, receiving money from who we want. And doing those things simply is incredibly important because you, you shouldn't need to be tech savvy or need to have a bunch of money or free time to learn how a tool works in and out to be able to gain this, this kind of financial freedom. So Monero really takes kind of the blueprint of Bitcoin um, and makes sure that it's accessible to everyone in a way that is, is privacy preserving by default, um, is easy to, to mine and get access to if you want to jump in on it, on it that way. And um, ultimately is going to be the, the tool that unlocks financial freedom for you. Um, obviously it doesn't solve all problems. It's not money. It doesn't fix everything. Um, and digital cash doesn't fix everything, but it fixes a key piece of the kind of the issues that we face today, uh, especially as we're kind of hurtling towards central bank digital currencies and um, Fed coin and all these, the, the fun things that governments have in store for us um, in the next few years or decades. So I think Monero is a really critical piece of that. Um, but we can dive more into the, the technology and how it works if you'd like. Oh, had myself muted there for a sec. Um, so exactly what sort of information is available um, on other uh, technologies uh, such as Bitcoin? Let's just go with Bitcoin to keep it simple. Yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely the, the best place to start. Um, early on, people thought that Bitcoin, or at least many people thought that Bitcoin was, um, was really anonymous digital cash. Uh, it was viewed as this tool that, that could be used outside of the, the purview or surveillance of the state. Um, it was something that, that could be used on places like Silk Road and other areas where the state does not want you to be able to transact. And, and a lot of people kind of 
unwittingly pushed the idea that it was anonymous and it did preserve privacy to a level that was sufficient. Um, but ultimately, Bitcoin is really just pseudonymous um, or pseudo-anonymous. It, it really, it takes this concept of privacy to a very simplistic layer where on the blockchain, like if you're looking at Bitcoin on a, on a block explorer, um, you pull up blockchain and you, you look at a Bitcoin transaction, um, you can easily see the addresses that are involved. You can easily see the amounts of Bitcoin that are being transacted. You can see where funds have come from in the past, where they go in the future. Um, you gain access to a lot of information. And while that isn't directly tied to like your personal ID, like if I send you some Bitcoin, you're not going to have my driver's license attached to it or anything like that. Um, so there's, there, there is that pseudo, pseudo anonymity. Um, and the, the only thing that you see is a Bitcoin address. Um, but because when you look at a Bitcoin transaction, you can see that that address, which gives you a, an easy link back to the rest of the history of that, that coin or that transaction. Um, you can see those amounts. You can quickly peek into my wallet and see how much Bitcoin I have. Um, you could do things like if you can't track me down another way, you can use the amounts that were in the transaction to try to track me down through kind of amount-based heuristics. Um, and you can also tell, uh, and this is obvious in Bitcoin, but differs in Monero, you can tell when someone has spent funds and when they haven't spent funds. Um, so if I send you Bitcoin, I can just keep watching it. And once you've spent it, I can see where it goes, but I can know the moment you've spent it because that, that information is public for everyone. Um, Monero, on the other hand, it takes a similar model um, in that it's it's peer-to-peer. -peer. I can transact directly with you um, without any kind of middleman. Um, it, it's a very similar concept, but it uses cryptography to hide those key pieces of information. Um, so within Monero, there are no addresses published on chain. So there's no simple trackable identifier attached to every, uh, every wallet and every transaction like Bitcoin. Um, it does this using something called one-time addresses, which essentially just when you, when you scan someone's QR code or you put in their address, your wallet will generate a unique one-time address to actually publish to the blockchain that's um, unlinkable to the address that they've given you but they can validate that it's theirs on their own, their own wallet side. Um, and hiding that address helps to easily prevent people from digging back into the previous history or future history of a transaction. Um, Monero also uses something called confidential amounts to hide the amounts in every transaction. Um, so even if somehow you knew what a previous transaction I had was, or you, you tried to look up a, a, an address or a wallet on a, a block explorer for Monero, you can't see any amounts involved. Um, so the only people who can see the amounts in a transaction are the people who are actually transacting. Um, again, very similar to cash. If I hand you a $20 bill, you don't know the history of it. You can't just quickly look at where I've gotten it from, where it's been spent in the past. Um, and the only people who know that we transacted and how much we transacted are me and you because I handed you the $20 bill. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, obviously, things are a little bit more complex when it... It is having to be published to this this public ledger, but Monero manages to, to kind of hit the, the sweet spot of digital cash where I can send it to anyone I want. I gain the, the good properties of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies like that, but I also gain the privacy of cash and the peer-to-peer -peer nature of cash. Um, and then the last piece of technology that Monero uses to uh, prevent people from getting visibility into your, your finances, and that can be just the person you're transacting with or a, a nation state, it doesn't really matter, um, is it uses something called ring signatures so that you can't tell which input to a transaction um, is actually the, the, the money coming from me. Um, 
And you could think of that kind of like, if I were to hand you a wad of bills, but only one of them is mine, um, and some of the bills were fake. It's kind of hard to to put into a real world analogy, but um, essentially allows allows me to gain some um, plausible deniability on which funds are actually mine. So even if you are a part of that transaction and you look on a block explorer or something like that, you can't even tell which one of the inputs to the transaction is actually mine to try to start tracing it back any further. Um, and that obviously pairs well with the, the addresses being one time only on chain and the amounts being hidden. Um, and really all these things come together in a way that is default. So you don't have to do anything extra. There's no special wallet. There's no special steps. Um, there's no 37 hour long course you have to go through to figure out how to, how to transact privately. You just pick up any Monero wallet. They all have to abide by these rules that preserve your privacy. And so you can pick up a, a mobile wallet, you can use a desktop wallet, whatever you like, uh, and you'll always gain these strong privacy guarantees, no matter if you're an extremely technical user or it's your grandma and you gave her uh, an app on her iPhone to be able to, to send and receive Monero. Uh, everyone gets that strong privacy, which I think is a, a very important piece of it and something that is very essential when we're trying to bring liberty to everyone who wants to opt into that liberty. So with with all of that, um, kind of feel like this is not the, it's probably what most people might be asking from this point who's not familiar with this space, but why exactly would the privacy um, at the foundational level be so important? Um, why is privacy needed in the digital financial market? Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really important question. Um, and it ultimately ties into to really why does anyone want to push towards personal privacy or want to preserve any of their privacy? Um, and ultimately that boils down to the ability to reveal of yourself and of the things that you do um, to who you want, how much you want. You, you get to choose and you get to decide who has visibility into your life and into the things that you do. Um, and ultimately when you do have privacy on both a broad level or a financial level, um, you gain access to freedom uh, because if you can choose who has the visibility into the things that you're doing, you can gain a lot more leeway in, in what you can do, who you can do it with, um, who you can talk to, who you can transact with, what you can buy, what you can sell. Um, it unlocks a whole nother level of freedom that you have, um, even if the, the government or nation state or neighbors or community that you're in is, is hostile to you or hostile to the things that you, you want to be able to do. Um, and that, that privacy really does give you, in Monero, it gives you the ability to, um, to have censorship-resistant transactions. So if you need to make a transaction that they want to stop you from making, um, it gives you that. It also can just give you great peace of mind because you know that when you're transacting with someone, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not going on darknet markets and buying drugs. Like That's not, <laughs> not the thing that I'm using Monero for. Um, I use it for harmless day-to-day -day transactions. I, I think that financial privacy is not something that should be only in the hands of those who are necessarily breaking laws or, or doing things that um, could be good or bad, but, but there, it, it really brings this immense peace of mind because just like using cash, when you, when you give someone a $20 bill, you don't have to think about where has this come from? What is this tied to? Uh, what will this tell the, the person I'm paying about me or about Probably don't want to think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you really don't. Um, and we've seen in Bitcoin, you have the opposite, where 
within Bitcoin is people are starting to realize that there is this history attached with every transaction, every, every coin on the blockchain. Um, and as more and more companies and blockchain analysis companies, which are these, these entities that basically solely exist to spy on Bitcoin users and sell their data to law enforcement, to governments, to um, private companies, whoever will, will pay them, we've quickly come to realize that you kind of have the worst form of cash with Bitcoin because when you're spending it, you, when you spend cash, like you said, you don't really want to know where it's been. Like there's, there's all the talk about like that most, most bills have traces of cocaine on them. And there's all this, this stuff that's been done with, with dollar bill and you don't really want to know. Um, but with Bitcoin, you can know, and you can know really easily where it's been sent, what it's, what's been done with it. Um, and companies and governments are making it a, a major aim of theirs to keep records of who owns Bitcoin, what they do with it, and they can easily use the blockchain to, to trace and surveil users there. Um, so we have this idea in Bitcoin of taint or tainted funds. Um, and that's that idea of like, just like if you had a $20 bill and you knew that it had just come from a drug bust and before that it had come from a bank robbery and before that it had come from a strip club. And if you knew all of these <laughs> things, you would both probably not want to hold the $20 bill, but you also might be worried if I spend this, am I going to get in trouble? Uh, or if I give this to a friend, are they going to have trouble spending that? Are they not going to be able to buy what they want? Are the, the feds going to come knocking on their door because they have this, this tainted $20 bill? And thankfully, that's not something we need to worry about with cash, but that is something we need to worry about with Bitcoin. Um, and even if you're an innocent party using Bitcoin or even just being a part of a circular economy and accepting Bitcoin for like um, goods and services, that, that idea of taint, that traceability, um, that like a fungibility, which is another kind of common word that we talk about in the, the Monero space. Um, when you have those issues, uh, it starts to put this, this immense burden on people. When you're trying to accept Bitcoin, spend Bitcoin, receive it, whatever, um, you have to kind of keep that in the back of your mind of like, where were these funds from? Are they from this exchange that has my ID? Do I not want this connected with my ID? Um, and, and that, that burden really causes problems, both just from a mental perspective, because you have to think about that, or you have to do extra things to hide that history. Um, and it could get you in trouble. It could prevent you from being able to spend funds how you want. Um, there are a lot of potential problems. So ultimately, I mean, a privacy is just a tool to enable freedom. It's to give you the ability to do what you want to do, um, and, and do it even if the, the state or whoever wants to try to, to prevent you or, or shut you down. Um, and that's not all for illegal or bad things or anything like that. Um, that can quickly be a, a life or death thing in an authoritarian regime. That can be facing religious oppression, being a racial minority. There are many, many, many scenarios where a net positive is doing something against a, a nation state or a government or against people who want to surveil you. Well, and I like, I, I really like to point this out that, um, you know, I, I've heard the arguments before that only criminals use cryptocurrency or specifically Monero. Yeah. And it's like, well, if you want to go that route, uh, criminals use cash all the time. Uh, far, tons of criminals use the banking system. And if you really want to get into it, nation states, governments use both. So, um, you know, uh, the Fed is a private bank, not even a government institution. And so, you know, if, if your concern is that criminals use it, it's like, well, criminals use a lot of things. Uh, criminals use cars. So you're going to stop using a car? <laughs> and often criminals are the first adopters of 
powerful technology that that paves a way to just a better society to more freedom to other things i mean first adopters for smartphones first adopters for cell phones many of the first adopters of the internet um, the first adopters really the first usage of bitcoin was the silk road um, which was yeah. a bunch of criminals using bitcoin and it was really what kind of put bitcoin on the map and showed the use case that we could get out of these things um free ross by the way yeah yeah absolutely um there's a crazy situation still but um yeah it's a it's both a poor argument from the perspective of the u.s dollar is by far the most used currency for crime um and i'm glad that you pointed out that that banks are often a key part and complicit in in financial crime as well and very happy to do so as long as they get their cut um whereas something like monero the there's no one who needs to be complicit. There's no middle party. If someone wants to use it for crime, they can, um, for better or worse. It's, it is peer-to-peer. It is permissionless. It is censorship-resistant. Um, but the same can be said of people using it to escape human rights violations or just me wanting to use it to pay for a good VPN service or whatever. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I think it's worth to point out that um, during the Canadian trucking protest, Several times did the Canadian government shut down a American company, uh, two American companies. The the what what was it? Give Saying Go and GoFundMe both got shut down by Canadian Parliament, which is just an extension of uh, uh, UK Parliament, and they were unable to get their funds. So they thought, hey, let's try Bitcoin. Well, guess what? Bitcoin was still blacklisted and they still prevented them from getting a few million dollars worth of donations. So uh, it kind of seems like privacy is really the key factor in all of this uh, if you want to have any freedom at all. Yeah. So um, from that, what... Let's see, how, how would I word this? So what, one thing that people might not know is that it's not the easiest thing to get a hold of Monero. Um, exchanges, um, typically like Coinbase, which is them and Binance are about the most popular, I would say, um, at least as far as uh, the, the lay person, the common person who just knows very little. Um, why is a coin like Monero not available on these exchanges? Yeah, it's really, it's been interesting to watch the process of Monero kind of going through these cycles of um, listing, delisting, exchanges being for Monero and against Monero. And um, ultimately we've seen a few large exchanges and a lot of smaller exchanges, but a few large ones remove Monero um, or refuse to list it. Like Coinbase is a good example of they constantly talk about how they care about user privacy and they care about the privacy of the people who use Coinbase, but they show that they don't really because they don't list Monero very intentionally. Um, And I think we've seen, we've seen through this process of Monero proving itself in many different arenas through growing adoption, um, both by, regular people and through places like darknet markets, similar to Silk Road, where um, we've kind of had this this battle testing of how effective Monero is. Um, but we've also just seen that in the, the growing popularity of Monero, just as a tool for financial freedom by regular people, that um, governments and banks specifically um, understand that the easiest way to prevent people from gaining 
financial freedom is to prevent them from getting it or to make them go through regulated on and off ramps to to get it or to sell it back for dollars. Um, and so they've done this through two two approaches. And basically the, the throwing out the baby with the bathwater approach is this not listing or delisting Monero and just saying, you, don't, you can't have access to that. We're not going to allow exchanges to list that. And essentially banks will do this through shadowy back channels. There's no official regulation. There's no law that prevents exchanges from being able to list Monero. Um, there is nothing that prevents that uh, in, a, in a legislative way. But it's ultimately these banks that want to be able to control the things that you do with your money, that want to be able to surveil the things that you do with their money. They're more than happy for exchanges to list Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that provide no user privacy by default. Um, I do want to quickly say real quick, Bitcoin can be used privately. It can be used in a censorship resistant manner, but it's very difficult. Um, so I, I don't want to make people think that it's impossible to do that. There are cases where you can do that, and there are some good tools out there like Samurai Wallet, but um, Monero is much easier, so that's that's one of the big reasons I focus on it. Um, but, so yeah, the two approaches, delisting Monero or just not listing it at all, like Coinbase. Um, and the other approach is to allow the listing of Monero, but to try to restrict it to only these exchanges that are, are regulated. Um, in the cryptocurrency space, we usually refer to them as KYC exchanges. Um, and that, that stands for Know Your Customer. Um, you, you could also see KYC AML, which is Know Your Customer Anti-Money Laundering. Um, and these are kind of two broad sweeping sets of regulation that are theoretically designed to prevent financial crime um, and, and include basically you identifying yourself in several ways before you're able to, to get onto one of these exchanges and start to, to buy or sell Monero. Um, usually involves a personal ID, usually a photo of you like holding your ID, sometimes a video. There's a lot of a lot of steps, but essentially involves you giving up all of your personally identifiable information to this exchange um, to get access to Monero. Uh, and, and the beautiful thing with Monero is if you do go that route, even though I don't advise it, and we can talk about that more, but if you do go that route, at least once you withdraw from the exchange, um, and you should always be withdrawing whatever cryptocurrency you're buying from the exchange, don't leave it there. Once you withdraw from an exchange with Monero, you can think of it very similarly to withdrawing cash from an ATM. Um, yes, the bank knows who you are. They know that you withdrew this amount of money from the ATM. Um, they know that you have it, but they can't tell what you do with it afterwards. Um, and Monero functions very similarly where, yes, you've given them your ID. You've, you've told them I'm buying this much Monero and I'm withdrawing it to this uh, Monero address but they can't trace it after that. Um, but it is important that people realize that that doesn't remove their visibility and the fact that you own Monero and that you've drawn it to your own wallet. Um, and it doesn't prevent the other issues that come with the KYC AML regulated exchanges, which one of the biggest ones, just the risk of a, a data loss or theft or hack where someone breaks into that exchange, gets information about who owns how much cryptocurrency, and they get a nice tidy list of everyone's addresses, where they live, who they are, and how much cryptocurrency they've bought and sold over the years. Um, and that can be used to, to do theft. Lots of different things can be done out of that. But that's one of the risks. But the, the bigger one, I think, long-term, is that governments get this nice, tidy list of everyone within their country who has bought or sold Bitcoin, Monero, et cetera. Um, and so if they want to outlaw it in the future or they want to go after the, the people who have chosen to, like, for instance, just buy Monero and throw it to their own wallets, they have that nice tidy list of, of how to do that. Um, and so avoiding that type of exchange is very, very important to, to gaining ultimate financial freedom. Obviously, Monero does still protect you once you withdraw, 
but it doesn't erase that history of you purchasing Monero. Um, but yeah, I think those are the two main approaches that we've seen governments or banks take is either just not list it in the hopes that no one will have access to it so they won't gain that that ability to transact how they want or they list it and then they, they try to make sure that the only way you can easily get it is through these these exchanges that all, are also collecting all of your personally identifiable information. So from that, what what kind of threats are we facing if we don't have privacy in the cryptocurrency universe? It, it seems as though Pandora's box has been opened. Cryptocurrency is going nowhere. Um, and I would argue that even some some governments, uh, some institutions would probably prefer society to be ran on a cashless society, um, much like on a blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what kind of threats are we facing, we as sovereign citizens, um, who want to be able to protect their privacy and their liberty? Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, ultimately, these can be tools to improve the surveillance capabilities of governments. Um, Thankfully, things like Bitcoin that are actually decentralized are pretty hard to shut down. Like uh, a government's not really going to be able to just shut down the Bitcoin network. Um, Right now, a government can't really censor transactions on a broad scale if you're transacting peer-to-peer, like actually sending Bitcoin directly to someone's self-hosted wallet from your own your own self-hosted wallet. Um, and so there, that decentralization does play a big part in the, the censorship resistance and the, the prevention of a government stopping us from doing what we want. Um, but it, it can provide a very easy way for governments to surveil the things that we do financially. And they can do this in a way that doesn't even require a warrant or anything like that. I mean, one of the the most powerful things and the most dangerous things of Bitcoin is that it, it is this public immutable ledger everyone can have a copy of every transaction that's happened on the network. Um, and that, that information is stored for all time. So they don't even have to be actively surveilling you if they just want to go 10 years in the future and pull up information about what you've done. Let's say you bought Bitcoin on a, a KYC exchange that we just talked about. So they have your ID. They saw that you withdrew to this Bitcoin address. Um, let's say you didn't use any of the, the Bitcoin privacy tools, which are complex, but they do exist. Um, and so at any point in the future, they could quickly start with that address that you withdrew to and trace everything that you've done on the Bitcoin blockchain from that point forward. Um, and that doesn't need to be something where they wanted to surveil you at that point when you first bought Bitcoin. It can happen at any point down the line. Um, so it really can enable some unique and more harmful surveillance avenues for governments to, to see who they want to go after. Um, that could be, right now, that could be a, a drug user or a darknet market, but Tomorrow, and in, in many countries already, that's someone who is just part of a, an ethnic minority or a, a religious minority or somebody who is a, um, a dissident against an authoritarian regime or something like that. Um, and a, a tool like that that lacks default privacy can often be more harmful than if you're using cash. And in many of these countries where something like this is most essential today, there still is is free access to cash. Like you can still use cash pretty easily. Um, and Cash is really a beautiful thing. I mean, even I, I love Monero, but if you can pay with cash, cash is always going to be better because it's it's something yeah. that is direct. It's it's peer to peer. It's physical, and it's something that's even less traceable than Monero is because there there doesn't need to be a digital trace anywhere. 
Um, so there are, there are advantages to that. And, and as we see governments, I think both realize the surveillance capabilities that things like Bitcoin have brought to the forefront um, and realize that while they can surveil Bitcoin easily, it is at least tricky to stop people from spending it peer to peer. Um, they've, they've quickly understood that as most people are going to come and go through these centralized exchanges that have KYC and have all of these things, most merchants are going to use um, ways to accept Bitcoin that directly convert to dollars. So they're directly connected to blockchain analysis services or to banks that, that want to surveil what happens on Bitcoin. Um, the ways that you can actually use Bitcoin quickly diminish because like we saw in the, um, the Freedom Convoy in, in Canada, um, many people got Bitcoin um, in the, that donation process. It was a very, very poorly done <laughs> donation process. They basically broke every rule in the book as, as far as operational security or privacy. Um, I think a lot of it intentionally, but some of it unintentionally. Um, but the people that did get Bitcoin, the vast majority of that was then seized later on because the people, they had no way to spend it peer to peer. There are very few people who sell things for Bitcoin in person directly. Um, thankfully, it's growing somewhat, but there isn't much of that. So most of them just sent that Bitcoin straight onto a centralized exchange where the government had already blacklisted those Bitcoin addresses and those Bitcoin coins so that they could quickly see, okay, you just deposited a blacklisted coin. Um, now we both have that coin because you send it to an, uh, an address that you don't control. And now we have you because we have your ID directly associated with this transaction on the blockchain that we explicitly forbade and said that you couldn't do. Um, so it can quickly become a tool that is far worse than cash, but it often can even be worse than the traditional financial system because anyone can just pull up a block explorer and look at these things. Um, and that, that applies also to just the random person you're transacting with. I mean, a, a merchant that you send money to, if you're not careful about how you use your Bitcoin, they could quickly see that, oh, you bought Bitcoin back in 2012 and you have a thousand Bitcoin sitting in your wallet. And yeah, you only, you only sent me five bucks for coffee, but the next time you swing around for coffee, I'm going to have a few buddies here to make sure they get the rest of that thousand Bitcoin. Um, there are a lot of other risks outside of just like a, a nation state wanting to prevent what you do. Um, but that is, is definitely a, a key part of it. Um, but I, I think governments too have kind of taken the blueprint of what they've seen in Bitcoin and they're, they're pushing now for central bank digital currencies. And they're trying to use a lot of the verbiage and the words that we use to describe Bitcoin to essentially sell CBDCs to the populace to make them sound enticing, to make them sound attractive. Um, but CBDCs will ultimately be the worst of all worlds because they'll be, they will be digital in the bad sense that everything that you do on them will be very visible to the government. Um, the government will have complete control over who you transact with, your ability to transact at all. Um, if you get on their, their bad side, they can just flip a switch and you're no longer able to transact or exist in the economy. Um, and then they also could do things like negative inflation or negative uh, interest rates and um, a lot of unique approaches to essentially stealing your wealth over time once we once they push towards these central bank digital currencies. And that push is coming alongside a push against cash um, and a push to remove that because ultimately cash is a very powerful tool for financial freedom. Um, and so having an alternative like Monero is is really vital because it is it's simple to use. Uh, hopefully people will start to, to use it, to learn it, to get access to it now. But even in the event things go south very quickly, um, as long as you can get access to some, it'll, it'll continue to be very easy to transact. Um, the actual places you can spend it are, are rising rapidly. There's a lot of growing adoption there as well, but um, it's really a, 
one of the few bright spots in the the hurdle towards the destruction of financial privacy long term that the governments really want to aim for because ultimately if you have no ability to transact you have no ability to live it's it's one of the most core things and if they can remove that ability for you to to transact freely any of your other rights that you think you have quickly go away you're, you're not going to be able to do anything you're not going to be able to probably even survive if you can't transact freely um, and we saw a lot of that happen with again the freedom convoy where they prevented people from spending their their money they locked down bank accounts they froze funds and donation accounts they did all of this because they realized that you shut down the supplies that the truckers have you shut down their access to gas you shut down their access to food you shut down their access to paying their mortgages and their rents their rent and everything like that they're going to go home because when you don't have any ability to engage in economy um, you quickly run out of options so one thing I I, I kind of want to change gears here a little bit, but we'll we'll end up circling back um, with with the digital world that we live in now. It it seems like everything we do is pretty much tracked. We we pretty much willingly give up almost every little bit of information about ourselves. Um, I mean it it's scary the amount of information we give up um, to corporations. Uh, at, at least that's how it starts. You know, uh, we, we give up our daily life habits to companies like Amazon, um, which they're able to use targeted advertising to be able to better um, target advertise products or services that we would like. And what is more some of the um, simpler things that people can do just to tighten their online and just their, um, yeah, just their online presence? What, what are some of the things that people can really do to kind of start gaining back some of that control? Yeah, yeah, this is, I, I think, a, a critical piece of the conversation and something that doesn't happen as much as I'd like to see it in the the libertarian space and the cryptocurrency space, even in the Monero space, is, is really talking about broader personal privacy and, and understanding that um, the privacy that we gain through something like, even if we're, we're talking about Monero, which obviously is an excellent tool for privacy, it doesn't solve all of the problems that we're facing today um, in this digital age. It's not going to prevent Facebook from scooping up your data. It's not going to prevent um, targeted advertisement from trying to, to craft you into the person that they want you to be and craft you into the consumer that they want you to be. It's not going to prevent governments from leveraging censorship on these platforms. It's a powerful tool that enables a lot of other things, but it, it doesn't solve everything. So broader personal privacy is a huge, huge part of that. Um, and I have, a, I have a blog post that essentially walks through kind of if I was starting from scratch, where would I go? for personal privacy. Um, and I can send you the links you can include in the show notes, but yeah, for um, sure. ultimately I think a few of the, the big things to hit are finding a good community that can help you along the way. Um, I know it sounds counterintuitive. It's a lot of technology that'll will fix things, but <laughs> when you find a community that, that you can walk through this journey with and, and really shifting towards personal privacy is not a simple thing because we've, we've been kind of pushed against our will into this world where the default is giving up all of our data, even engaging in just the very basic parts of society, 
usually involves creating some sort of social media account or online account, giving up a, a bunch of information, installing an app on our smartphone that constantly tracks location and all of these things. Those are very basic things that aren't even these complex, I'm opting into this, but it, it really is the default of our world now. Um, so finding a community that can come alongside you, that can help to give ideas, that can help you to stay up to date with the latest tools and techniques, um, a community that can help to just kind of buck you up when things are tough, when you're kind of getting getting worn out and, and tired of the, the process of pushing back against the broken system that we're in. Um, finding those communities is very, very important. Um, so I'd definitely say start there and those communities will have their own people who can help to kind of guide you. Uh, I think somebody somebody recently used the term digital Sherpa, uh, just kind of as someone <laughs> who can walk I you like through that. that journey. It is a really good term. Definitely need to, need to steal that and use that more often. But um, finding those people within a community that you fit in already will be helpful to kind of give you the longevity, give you the ability to, to last as you walk through this journey. Um, I think the first kind of technical change that you should make is thinking about using a more privacy-preserving browser. Um, and ultimately, the, the best two options for this are either Brave Browser, um, which I think is my general recommendation because it has a little bit better defaults than some of the others just out of the box. Um, and then Firefox is also an excellent option, but you do need to do some some changes because they, they do some stupid stuff with their default search uh, engine, a lot of the telemetry that they bake in. Um, there's definitely some stuff that you need to tweak, but once you tweak it, it it works very well and is a good, a good privacy-preserving base um, to, to what you're doing. And uh, both of those are available on both desktop and, and mobile. Um, and it's really important that you, you switch to something like that on either platform because the vast majority of our lives is either done through an app on a smartphone or through a browser, either on a smartphone or on our desktops. Um, so if you can start to restrict the access to all of these sites and, and tools that we use and access through a browser, get access to, you're starting to prevent them from tracking you, you're preventing these cookies, you're preventing ads from targeting you, you can prevent a lot of the the basic ways that each of these websites and platforms try to track you across the internet. Um, and many, many companies that maybe, maybe you don't have a Facebook account, um, but you use something like Google Chrome and you don't use anything like uBlock Origin or any kind of uh, privacy preserving extensions, Facebook actually tracks people who don't even have Facebook accounts through large portions of the internet. Um, so even when you're visiting completely disconnected different websites, they often include Facebook trackers so that Facebook can build a profile on you. Even if you don't have a Facebook account, they know where you visit, they know what you like, they know your browsing habits, they can gather this information, even if you haven't opted into the Facebook ecosystem. So there's a lot there that even if you're kind of taking the other steps and even if you're, you're kind of minimalizing the social media presence you have or that kind of thing, jumping into a better privacy-preserving browser will help to prevent that kind of tracking across the internet that's that's rampant right now. And it's actually a very simple process too, like switching to Brave Browser from Google Chrome. It's, it's really based on Google Chrome. So the interface is gonna be very similar. The import process of all your stuff is gonna be very easy. Um, and then there's basically one key extension that you'll wanna jump into, which is called uBlock Origin. Um, and again, all this is in the blog post, so people can jump straight to direct links from there. But um, that will give you a, a really good base to, to jump into to gaining better privacy. Um, the other two main ones, I think I have 10 in this blog post, but the other two main ones that I want to focus on here are, um, switching to a more privacy preserving email service. Um, I personally use ProtonMail. I, I really, really enjoy it. Um, there are some good, I do as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that you're using ProtonMail when we were chatting. 
Um, and it's it's really simple. It has a great user experience in, in most of their their apps. The, the website is the thing I use the most and works very, very well. It's a pretty seamless process to, to switch to that. Um, but ultimately what that will do is that that prevents the email provider that you use from being able to see the contents of all of your email, from being able to just build profiles on what you are, where you shop, what you look like, what you who you talk to, the things that you say. Because ProtonMail uses something that essentially allows you to send and receive email freely, but only you have access to the emails in your account. Um, even if they wanted to get into your emails and go through what's there, they have no ability to do that. Um, and that's been proven through many court cases where they've been subpoenaed and are unable to provide emails to the government or law enforcement, not because they don't, they can't or that not because they don't want to or because they're trying to just kind of give the middle finger to a government because when you're a big company like that you you comply with those things but they're smart and they built out technology that protects both them and their customers like me um, from that kind of data that that invasion of um, privacy and that, that access so um, using something like that is really important because the other kind of big portion of our life that's not in a web browser is going through email in one way or another um, and so limiting who has access to that data is, is a big step forward. Um, that can definitely be annoying if you've been using an email account for forever and all of your accounts are tied to one email account. It's a process to switch to that um, and to, to kind of switch over. But my advice there is just like every time you log into a service, go ahead and just quickly jump in, change the email to a new email address like ProtonMail once you have an account set up. Um, and just take it one account at a time. Don't don't try to sit down in a weekend and change your hundred online yeah. accounts because that's definitely going to wear you out. Um, and then the last one I think that uh, I want to go over is is just switching to a more privacy preserving search engine. Um, and I think this is one many people often forget because the default in most browsers is just Google. And honestly, Google has historically been amazing. It works very well. It has great contextual search. It has great um, unique features built in. It's It has been a very good tool. Uh, and before I became a, a privacy advocate, I was a huge Google fanboy because their their tools and their solutions work really, really well. Um, and Google search has worked really well. It, it really does seem to be getting worse. But um, one of the key problems with using a search engine like that is, again, if you're doing personal privacy right in a lot of other areas, but everything that you're searching is going straight to Google along with your location, along with this information about your IP address, along with all of this, they can quickly and easily build a profile around who you are. Because if you think about the things that you search for, and if you just think about like what you've searched for over the past month, um, you can get a pretty good picture on who you are as a person, what you care about, where you shop, where you go, the things that you're passionate about. You can learn a lot about someone from their search habits alone, even if you have no other yeah. information. So limiting that is, is really, really important. Um, and there's some some great search engines out there that you can switch to. Um, DuckDuckGo, I'm kind of not a fan of anymore because they've kind of jumped on the censorship bandwagon. Um, but they do, I heard. they do have a long track record of preserving privacy. They just have, I think, shown some of their colors in, in censoring content lately in ways that I don't approve of. But there is some good, there's been some good back and forth in the privacy community about like what they're doing and whether it's okay or not. Um, so I wouldn't dismiss them out of hand for that, but they have been doing some stuff that I'm not a huge fan of lately. Um, ultimately, essentially, DuckDuckGo is a proxy for Bing. So it gives you Bing results, but it gives you it gives them to you in a way that's privacy-preserving and prevents Bing from being able to build a profile on you and gain all this information. Um, 
There's also one called Start Page, which is kind of the Google version of DuckDuckGo, where the yeah, results. I was just going to ask you about them. Yeah, yeah, they're really interesting. Um, I interviewed them on my podcast and walked through their approach and and what they do. They've been around for a very long time. I think. 14 or 15 years now. Oh, wow. Um, which I had not realized until I interviewed them, but they, they were really the first privacy-preserving search engine. Um, and they're similar to DuckDuckGo in that they essentially just proxy results to Google to preserve your privacy. Um, and they do, um, they do ads within their search, but they're not ads based on you specifically. They're ads based on the search that you've made. Um, so they're done in a way that's privacy preserving. It doesn't tell them about you. It doesn't build profiles around you, but just allow them to make some money by serving those ads while you search, uh, which I think is a reasonable model. It's kind of an, an in-between of many others, but um, they work pretty well. The main problem I've had with them is that if you use a VPN or Tor, they're very, very restrictive on using start page. Um, I essentially just couldn't use them anymore because they started blocking uh, IVPN exits. So every time I try to search, I'd have to go through this rigmarole. It just wasn't very fun. Um, the other main one that I've been using lately and really enjoying, um, shout out to Henry from TechLore. It's a great, great privacy channel. Um, they have a YouTube channel just called TechLore, T-E-C-H-L-O-R-E. Um, he recently put out a video where he switched from DuckDuckGo to Brave Search. Um, and Brave Search is, is a search engine that's built by the same people as the Brave browser. But the thing that's unique that sets it apart from things like DuckDuckGo and StartPage is that it's not just a proxy for someone else's results. They're essentially trying to do what Google does and build their own index of the internet um, and provide their own results. So they're not just kind of proxying your results back to Google or Bing or somebody else. Um, and it, it works really, really well. I've been very impressed um, with their, their search service. It's the default in the Brave browsers. If you install that, I, I think that's still the default. Um, you'll start using that right away. It's definitely worth giving it a try. Um, they're still pretty early stages, but the the effectiveness of, of search and the features they have built out are, are really, really nice. Um, so that's another good option. But um, I think those are some of the easiest ways to jump in and start kind of taking back your personal privacy. There are a lot more. That blog post, like I said, has 10 different ones. That was just three of them. Um, so there, there are a lot of things you can do, but something that I kind of harp on a lot on, on my podcast is privacy is a journey. It's not something that you're just going to, you're not going to go from the normal person who's a consumer with eight social media accounts and doing all this to someone who's a, a perfect privacy guru the next day. It's a, it's a, it's a process. It's going to take time. It's a, a slow evolution as you learn what you prioritize, what you want to, um, gain privacy in, what you want to prevent surveillance on what you value. Um, and as you do that and slowly iterate through and kind of walk through some of these tools, um, you, you will improve, you will see progress, but it's definitely something that takes some time. So don't feel like you have to finish everything all at once. Um, just start with something, take some, some serious real steps and, um, just take, take the process one step at a time. Yeah, that's killer. I, I made sure to, uh, post your, uh, blog post in the, uh, the comments. I'll make sure and include that in the uh, episode description as well. Uh, I had to throw it on the Telegram as well. Make sure and pin that so people can find it. Um, you know, so I, I work, um, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to say who I work for, but I don't really care. Um, so I work for um, a company who's subcontracted for Goldman Sachs. Hmm. And... So I work in the fraud department. Uh, I do intake for fraud disputes and everything. And 
it's the uh, for the Apple card. And maybe I have a negative opinion about this because I have, um, you know, you know, I always see the worst. I never see anybody who doesn't have a problem because that's why I have a job. Um, one, one thing I can say is that what I've noticed, most people just don't even think about fraud. Most, most people don't even think about having their information stolen, uh, including their card numbers, their bank accounts. Um, not until it's too late. That that's honestly just one of the best, best things that I could ever recommend is just be aware of it in the first place. Yeah. Is that there are tons of people out there willing to steal your information. Um, corporations, governments, pretty much everybody. And the amount of information we put out there is disgusting. You know, it's, uh, and we willingly put it out there with no reward back, honestly. That's, that's one of the key benefits of pursuing personal privacy too, is it, it's not just something that is, it is for the scenario where a nation state's out to get you or um, uh, you don't want people to be able to quickly see what you do day to day. Like it, it also just helps to protect you from the things that we constantly see, which are companies are terrible at cybersecurity and they're really good at collecting data, which means that companies have breaches all the time. And over time, those breaches are getting worse and worse. There's more of them. The amount of data that's being exposed is getting worse. Um, and so when you do things the, the normal way, which is just dump all your data to whoever wants it for whatever free service, free service they're providing you, <laughs> you, you ultimately are going to get swept up in those. You're going to be involved in hacks. You're going to have your personal information stolen. You're going to have your credit card information stolen. It's going to happen as you just start broadcasting that information to whoever asks you for it. Um, but when you're thinking more seriously about personal privacy and you're starting to take some of these steps, you're starting to use things like, and it's one of my, one of the high up things that I didn't mention, but using a password manager to better manage your online accounts to generate strong passwords. You also protect yourself both from a privacy perspective of people being able to just log into your accounts with simple to guess credentials, but you're also protecting yourself in the event of one of these hacks and that if they get your username and password that you use here, if you use the same Gmail account and the same 10 digit password everywhere, now all of your accounts are vulnerable. But if you're using something like a password manager, now at least the damage is limited to that one place. You can quickly change your password. It's not a problem and it's not affecting you everywhere else. So as you take these steps, the things that we see happening just incredibly frequently, and I, I worked in cybersecurity for a long time, it's, it's, not a pretty place and it's it's constantly the most <laughs> underfunded and the most forgotten piece of even companies that build themselves as cybersecurity companies so the these companies are not good at keeping your data they're good at, at hoovering it up scooping it up asking you for it not asking you for it and just taking it anyways but they are not going to secure it well um so another piece of gaining that personal privacy is that you you remove your your exposure to these hacks and these attacks and fraud and all of these different things. Yeah, it's a huge piece of it. So I, I do kind of want to circle back um, to Monero itself. Um, starting this with, uh, you know, the starting point that most people are probably familiar with cryptocurrency. Um, one thing that I run into more often than not, um, unless I run into s some more uh, cryptocurrency nerds, you know, um, do you kind of want to 
as briefly as you can explain the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, we haven't really seen many cryptocurrencies do proof of stake well so far, but uh, essentially the two approaches, proof of work is the proven one. This is something that's been, it is essentially, okay, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So proof of work is something that's been around for actually a very long time from before Bitcoin existed. Proof of work had been something that, that was originally created as an idea to counter email spam in that in order to send an email to someone, you would have to do some provable amount of work, which would essentially just prevent spammers from being able to, to easily send emails to everybody without any kind of detriment to themselves. They would at least have to do some computation and do something that was provably hard before they could send it. Um, but one of the beautiful things with Bitcoin is that Satoshi Nakamoto figured out how to use proof of work in a distributed system to build uh, a uh, build a money that could be decentralized and that could secure itself without a nation state, without laws, without anything that could keep those transactions secure and ensure that when you transact, you can have finality. And finality is just a simple concept. Like when you give someone a $20 bill, when you hand it to them, it's final. They have the $20. You don't, obviously they could be, you could beat them up and get it back or something, but um, there's a the finality of they have that money. Um, in like the credit card world, finality is really tricky because things don't actually settle for like 30 to 60 days. But in theory, when you swipe or tap your credit card, the merchant has a claim on your money at least, and you no longer have a claim on that money. Um, and with proof of work, essentially what, what it does is it allows people to, to perform provably difficult work. Um, and it's not like a, it's not a math problem or something that's like helpful. It's intentionally a, a useless task that's provably hard. So that in order to actually add new transactions to the Bitcoin blockchain, you have to perform this hard computational work. Um, so it's like telling your computer, I want you to perform this work for as long as you can. And if you can basically guess the right number, you will get to build the next block on the Bitcoin blockchain. And that block essentially both adds transactions to the blockchain. So it's saying this person sent money to them and that is now final. Um, and it also grants you as the person who's performing that work, the ability to get access to rewards. Um, and so you get as the, the miner is normally what people are called who do this, this work. Um, as you do that, you gain rewards both from what's called the block subsidy, which is an, an amount of Bitcoin that's emitted in every block as a reward for the miners. Um, and you get the transaction fees, which are just the fees that every person who chooses to use Bitcoin has to pay in order to get their transaction included um, in the network. So proof of work is that, that process where you use a computer or some piece of hardware to do this provably hard task in order to both secure the blockchain and to add new transactions onto the blockchain. Um, proof of stake is a very different concept because it essentially tries to let you use money that you already have within the network to lock that money up in some way. And it, it varies widely based on what cryptocurrency is trying to do this. And like I said, no large cryptocurrency has really been able to do proof of stake well, and it's much less proven and there are a lot more, a lot more risks and dangers associated with it. Um, but essentially what it lets you do is to say, I have this much, we'll just say Ethereum in this case, because Ethereum is trying to switch to proof of stake soon. Um, you can say, I have 32 Ethereum. I want to lock this up in exchange for um, mining rewards. 
And in doing so, I'm going to be a node on the network that helps to validate transactions and helps to add blocks onto the network. So essentially you're doing the same core tasks in that you're making sure transactions are legitimate, you're building blocks of transactions and submitting them to the network in hopes that you get the reward for adding that block onto the network and securing it. Um, but you do that with just having money in the system already and saying, I want to do this. Um, you don't need to buy computer hardware. You don't need to buy like in Bitcoin, you need to buy an ASIC, which is a specifically built computer for mining Bitcoin. Um, if you're doing proof of stake, you don't need to buy any of that. You don't need to have uh, access to large amounts of electricity. You don't need to, to spend a bunch of time setting it up. You don't need to do any of that. You just need to say, I have this Ethereum. I'm running a node. I want to lock it up and get these rewards. Um, so it simplifies the process, which can be good because people can more easily get access to those mining rewards and they can more easily secure the network. But it also means that anyone with money can just buy the asset, stake it, and then gain some control over the network. Um, and it opens up a lot of other issues like the people who have the most money within proof of stake ultimately will gain a larger and larger share of the the um, amount of money on the network over the long term. Like if major players in the Ethereum network choose to stake their Ethereum when Ethereum goes proof of stake, they will have the larger percentage up front and so they'll get a larger, larger percentage of the reward in each block and ultimately their piece of the pie will continue to grow and their percentage of the reward in each block will continue to grow infinitely. Um, and so it, it poses a lot of risk where ultimately the people who have the money now gain long-term control over the network and anyone who has money in the future can very easily and very quickly jump on and try to attack the network. Um, there are a lot of other pieces that go into it. Proof of work is very much the proven thing that we know works and we know works well. Proof of stake is an interesting experiment that people are trying to make work, um, but is very much still in that experimental phase and, and not, not ideal at this point, I would say. So how can we tell that a, say, say if you get a hold of some Monero, how can you tell if that Monero is real um, based upon the privacy that is in the foundation of it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the beautiful thing with Monero is that it doesn't sacrifice the, the decentralization or the, the auditability really, or the, um, the trustlessness of something like Bitcoin, even though it gives you these strong privacy guarantees. Um, and so within Monero, it uses many of the same properties as Bitcoin. It's proof of work binds. So people, um, in Monero, it's nice because anyone with a computer can mine, although in Bitcoin, you have to have the specialized hardware to be able to mine. I'm mining on my desktop right now as we, we chat. I'm mining on a, an old phone next to me. Um, I'm mining on some old servers in my basement. I can easily mine Monero on just regular commodity hardware. Um, so there's that trustless, decentralized network of people who are securing the blockchain. And those people, as well as anyone who's running a Monero node, are validating each transaction on the network. Um, so anytime you want to transact in Monero, you have to follow what are called consensus rules. And it's the same thing as Bitcoin, where you can only form and publish a transaction if it matches these guidelines that we've put in place. Um, and if you try to do something that's outside of those guidelines, you won't be able to submit the transaction and you won't be able to spend those funds. Um, and so within Monero, like for instance, even though we hide the amounts so that even the people who are mining these transactions and verifying them can't see the amounts in the transaction. So they can't actually do back of the back of the napkin math 
to see that the inputs and the outputs in the transaction balance out. But uh, Monero uses something called range proofs. Um, it's also often called confidential transactions or confidential amounts. There's a lot of different names for it. But ultimately what it means is that we can hide the amounts while ensuring that the person who creates the transaction creates this proof that says, I'm not going to tell you how much is involved in this transaction, but I can tell you in this provably cryptographically secure, mathematically secure way, these amounts do add up. Um, and so it allows miners, it allows people who are running nodes to make sure that those transactions are legitimate, that they're not trying to create Monero out of thin air, that they're not trying to, to spin funds twice or something like that. Um, and it can do this in a way that both hides the, the data, hides the details, while still proving that it's following these rules that we've set up for the network. Um, so it's really this, this middle ground of, or not really a middle ground, it's the best of both worlds in that you can still have strong privacy while having the auditability and transparency and um, trustlessness and decentralization that you gain from something like Bitcoin. Uh, and it does that using essentially nifty cryptographic and, and mathematical techniques to, to do so in a provable way without revealing the information itself. Yeah, that's some really cool stuff, honestly. You know, it's, I, I get honestly so excited hearing about some of the technology behind some of this because feels like magic. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, and I think that's what honestly scares a lot of people away from it or it's easy uh, for them to write it off because, you know, it's a technology they don't quite understand, which is why it's so important for me um, with my audience to be able to have you explain some of these things. Um, I guess the 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 last question I have kind of for that, and then we'll we'll get wrapped up here soon. We won't keep you too long. Um, how How can we ensure that Monero won't have a fifty one percent takeover? Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, a fifty one percent takeover would just be one person or one entity conglomerate uh, being able to control fifty one percent of the market. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a pressing issue for any cryptocurrency, and, and this applies to both proof-of-work and proof-of-stake. Um, because if someone has the majority share of the the security of the network, um, like with Bitcoin and Monero, that's proof-of-work, so that's mining power, that's hash power is often what it's called. Um, if you have the majority share of that, if you have more than 51%, which, like you said, is, is kind of a, the normal name that's given to this is like a 51% attack, um, Essentially what that means is that you get to write the rules for the network. Um, you get to decide what transactions go through and what, what don't. You get to decide um, what happens within the network. Uh, and within Monero, it's interesting because there's kind of two pieces to it. Um, one is Monero is has taken a different approach to mining than Bitcoin in that it's it's not really going for this mass, large business, huge mining farm approach to mining. It's trying to ensure that anyone can mine and secure the network easily, um, both to ensure that people have access to Monero, even if they don't have an exchange or something like that, they can still mine Monero and get some of it over the long term, um, and to preserve the decentralization of the network so that we don't have the vast majority of the, the hash rate or hash power of the network tied up in these large um, VC-funded, backed, uh, 
mining farms, which are then ultimately beholden to governments and um, beholden to their investors and, and ultimately have a lot of other things that they care about. Um, so we, we do gain a lot of strength from that, um, but we also lose some in that the overall hash rate on the network is generally going to be lower than something like like Bitcoin um, because we don't have these huge mining farms. So there, there are pros and cons there in that it means that the network within Monero is probably more decentralized than Bitcoin's is right now because the vast majority of miners are just random people mining in their homes. Um, but it also means that if like a nation state wanted to attack Monero and gain the vast majority of the mining power, um, it's something that, that could be done. Um, the, the other side of the coin is that thankfully the privacy, the coin, um, but thankfully, the privacy within Monero prevents someone who has the majority of the the mining power within the network from censoring specific transactions. Um, so, like, the beautiful thing in Monero is they would either basically have to say, do I want to allow no one to transact or do I want to allow everyone to transact? Because they won't be able to say, we want to blacklist these addresses. We want to prevent these people from transacting. Unlike Bitcoin, they can't do that within Monero because they can't prove what transactions include that address. They can't see amounts. They can't do any of this. So they would essentially have to either just try to shut down Monero entirely or just let it keep going as is, uh, which is a, a big advantage that Monero has over Bitcoin and that we, we don't have to worry as much about the, the censorship of specific transactions. Uh, but it is definitely still... It's still an issue, and it will always be an issue for any cryptocurrency. Um, but thankfully, there's some really cool technology there as well. There's been some cool developments on something called P2Pool, which is essentially a way for you to, to mine with other people in a way that's decentralized. Um, and getting into pool mining is a whole other topic we probably don't want to jump into, but essentially allows you to get more consistent rewards for mining without um, contributing to the centralization of mining power within the Monero network. So it's, it's really kind of the best case for both the miner and the network um, over something like solo mining or pooled mining. Um, so there, there are definitely things that, that we're doing to try to help that process, to try to prevent those types of attacks, um, and to, to try to limit that. But it is always going to be a concern, um, and it's something that is really helped by people just jumping in and, and deciding to mine Monero on their, their desktops, their laptops, whatever they, they feel like kind of jumping into it with. And they can get Monero rewards over time in exchange for helping to secure this financial freedom for everyone else who's transacting. Um, and I have some guides on how to jump into that if people are interested in mining as well. Um, but it's definitely, mining security is a complex topic and it's something that's always a concern for any cryptocurrency, but especially for ones that are smaller than Bitcoin. So just got two more questions for you. Um, yeah. we, we had kind of talked um, earlier and I, I had mentioned that I don't believe that the libertarian community is embracing Monero as much as it should. Um, it's, as soon as I found out about Monero, I fell in love. Like I was just hooked immediately. Um, I mean, outside of Monero, there's some other cool projects and stuff. You know, it, cryptocurrency is a is a really interesting world that you get sucked into. Um, but it's as far as its use and its what what it can be utilized for, what it stands for as the community itself. Which, by the way, best community of any cryptocurrency Absolutely. I have come across. Um, people actually trying to build um, culture 
you know, artwork and music and all kinds of fun stuff around it. You know, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, uh, got a shout out, uh, gratuitous. You can uh, go ahead and use my affiliate link down in the episode description. Make sure and get some coffee with some Monero. Tip those farmers down there. Um, what what do you think could be an, a good way to kind of break that ice with the libertarian community to really get these two communities welded together? Because I, I don't see why they aren't, honestly, uh, just based upon the foundation of both. Yeah, it's it is, it has been surprising to me to see that more groups like libertarians are not jumping on the bandwagon and seeing what Monero is. And I mean, ultimately, like we talked about a lot throughout this episode, or throughout this chat, Monero is freedom money. It's, it's digital cash. It brings the things that we want from cash into a, a financial system that's free of rampant inflation, that's free of centralized government control, um, something that you can save in and spend in. It, it really brings all of the things that you think someone who is a fan of liberty, who's a fan of personal sovereignty, would want to jump into. And it ultimately takes things a step further than Bitcoin does. And I think there's been, it seems like reasonable adoption of Bitcoin within the libertarian circles. Um, but I think the the issues around privacy and Bitcoin have not been clear to people yet. Um, I think especially because libertarianism and the, the ideals there are not really ideas that are persecuted yet. Um, they're not ones obviously that are widely held, but there's not like broad attacks against libertarians. Uh, it's not really viewed as like political dissidents. It's a, another party and it's another idea that is, um, is okay if not popular. Um, but libertarians I think... attack other, attack other libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, sounds, sounds right. <laughs> Um, but I think that that lack of kind of duress for libertarians has led to them being okay with Bitcoin and its flaws. Um, but I think there's definitely going to be a, a, there's going to come a time that people are going to make the shift and that shift is rapidly happening. Um, I really have been encouraged and just going to conferences and talking to people over the last couple of months that really freedom loving Bitcoiners use Monero. Um, and there's not, there is a very, very small cross-section of people who love freedom and know about Bitcoin that don't also use Monero nowadays. Um, and I think that's just because Monero is an Im 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 immensely powerful tool. Um, and if you love the things that Bitcoin brings from the um, perspective of Austrian economics and from self-sovereignty and censorship resistance, Monero is, just takes those to the next level. Um, and so I think it's a... It's something that will happen inevitably, but I think the the main thing that has to happen is just people within these communities need to start talking about the things that Monero provides, the, the financial freedom that it can give, um, and help to educate people who don't understand how Monero works or don't understand why personal privacy matters. Um, I think the other main problem is that many people just don't care about personal privacy. Um, even though they care about self-sovereignty and they care about personal liberty, they don't understand how personal privacy is a an absolutely necessary component to be able to having actual self-sovereignty. Um, so I think as those things grow and we're seeing those things grow out of necessity, um, we'll see more people shift into Monero. But really, I think the biggest piece is, is just education and, and getting the word out there so that people understand what Bitcoin is, what it can do, but also what its flaws are, and then what Monero does, how it fixes many or all of those issues. and 
and how it can be a, a very powerful tool for uh, for financial freedom and ultimately for for more broad freedom. Yeah, that's that's well put. I mean, I'm I'm over here uh, definitely shilling for it because you know, I like, like I said, it's uh, so. For anyone who doesn't know, I'm actually chair of my county libertarian uh, affiliate. Um, I'm a state organizer for for uh, the Mises Caucus uh, of the Libertarian Party. Um, you know, I work closely with the state Libertarian Party here in Utah. And um, outside of that, um, I'm actually running for office. Um, for state representative in District 9. Uh, by the way, my campaign does accept Monero. Nice. So, That's pretty awesome. yeah. Um, it should be some fun conversations with the lieutenant governor over financial reporting and how I do that. But, you know, we'll get it taken care of somehow. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, you know, both communities are near and dear to me. And uh, I don't understand why there's not more crossover. So, you know, I'll, I'll get to say I told you so at one point, you know. Um, Hopefully people come around before then, but yeah, if, if not, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited for it. I've, I've brought some people over. I'm hoping just more, um, you know, and I'm also hoping to spread the libertarianism in the, in the Monero community as well. You know, like I said, they both fit so well together. Um, one, one question I had um, I like to ask everybody, it's, it's honestly one of the reasons why I started the show. Um, and I, I like getting people's individual perspective on this, but why is liberty important? Why does it matter at all? It's hmm. a deep question. Didn't, uh, didn't prep for this one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it boils down to many of the same reasons why I focus on personal privacy, because it ultimately allows you to be you. Um, if you have personal liberty, if you have self-sovereignty, if you're able to, to determine the paths that you take, um, not only can you become who you want to be, but society as a whole benefits from the free expression of art, from the free expression of thought. Um, from free speech, it benefits from freedom to be able to to be ourselves, to to be who we want to be. Um, obviously, while respecting other people, while not harming other people, but um, being able to do those things allows us to ultimately decide who we are, um, what we're like, what we talk about, um, all of those kinds of things. So it really enables us to be fully human when we have liberty, um, and ultimately, when we lose that autonomy, we lose the ability to create great things. We lose the ability to build strong relationships. Um, just like when we lose privacy, we lose the ability to have intimacy in relationships. Because if everyone knows everything about you, there's no way for you to have a more intimate relationship with someone than you have with everyone else. Um, so there's really a, there's a lot of crossover there, but I, I think ultimately it comes down to when we have personal liberty, we are able to be human. We're able to be who we're intended to be, and we're able to really create great things and do great things in ways that aren't possible when we have to be fitting into some system or, or, or fitting into some, um, some, some guardrails that governments or others put on us. Yeah, that's well said. Well said. Like I said, that's one of the reasons I started this, this channel, that and uh, the threats against freedom of speech. You know, it's, mm -hmm. 
starting a show like this or having a show like yours um, is not not the best type of activism, I would say, but it it is activism. Uh, I had a guest on a while ago, a buddy of mine, Justin O'Donnell, who who said podcasting is not activism. Uh, I I beg to differ. Um, you know, I I agreed then, but I definitely disagree now. Um, you know, adding to the conversation, putting it out there, pretty much overwhelming the censors is what we have to do. We have to produce so much content and put out so much information out there that they can't that they can't censor it. Um, and so it's always important um, to have people like you, myself, and any anybody else in the privacy community, the the Monero community, the liberty minded movement that is uh, growing very rapidly in this country right now. And uh, honestly, it's uh, it's about damn time. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, usually people have to get burned before they wake up. So. Yeah. As more and more people are getting burned, as we've seen in the last few years, more and more people are waking up. So things like like this podcast, I think like mine, are, are tools that are there so that when people wake up, usually after they get burned, they're able to, to dive deep and, and learn the tools, to learn the, the philosophy, to learn the ideas, um, so that they're better equipped to, to push back against the, the overwhelming tide of authoritarianism and all the other things that we're facing. So I think these... I guess I've never thought of a podcast as activism, but I think in a lot of ways it, it is, and it's an equipping tool to, to help bring other people along, to help educate other people, and, and to help really enable the broader freedom movement. You know, part of building culture. So it's uh, yeah. one of the most important things right now. So go ahead and, uh, you know, get, give a quick rundown of your show where people can find you, what you have going on, and uh, if they want more. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so where you can find me, um, I have a blog at sethforprivacy.com. Um, you can jump in there to see kind of uh, privacy content, Monero content, guides around using Monero, um, using other privacy tools, uh, as well as lots of different contact info. So if you want to reach out, just go to sethforprivacy.com. Um, Twitter is really the only platform I'm on as far as like social media. So at Seth for Privacy, I'm, I'm active on there. Um, and then my podcast is called Opt Out, uh, and really we're just trying to kind of take a, a, a walk down the privacy journey and, and learn from others in the community, learn from others who are building these tools, um, and really to help to equip you, to equip people to better take control of their personal privacy and, and self-sovereignty, or, or more specifically data sovereignty, um, so that you do have this freedom that comes from personal privacy. Um, and so right now we're actually in a break between seasons. Um, the first season was a little bit more kind of philosophical and walked through some of the topics about like why privacy matters and some people's personal approaches to privacy. Uh, and then the second season we walked through a bunch of different tools for personal privacy and talked to the people behind them to, to learn more about them, learn more about using them and supporting the people making them. So definitely would always love people to, to jump in, listen there, um, reach out if you have questions or comments on, on the podcast, but um, hopefully it's good content to equip those who, who have woken up, who see the need for freedom and, and see the, the path towards freedom being through or at least alongside personal privacy. Um, yeah. Right on, right on. I made sure to link everything in the episode description. Uh, there's uh, down in the episode comments, you can find uh, several different links that we've talked about in this uh, episode. So feel free to click on those. 
And uh, if you've made it to this point in the broadcast, thank you so much. It was uh, it was a huge honor to have you on, Seth. Hopefully, we can get you back on. Like I said, I want to keep bridging that Monero and Libertarian gap. And uh, you know, there's there's a lot of questions that I get asked that aren't always something that uh, I'm equipped to handle. So hopefully, this this takes care of some of them for uh, some of my uh, local Libertarian community, and uh, we can start pushing that. And I'd like you to come back on at some point and uh, talk about just privacy in general. I can't imagine that things are going to be getting uh, better. So we'll, we'll, we'll need a more, uh, or the, the need for privacy is going to be a, a lot larger at some point. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on Jacob. Uh, it's great, great privilege and, and pleasure to get to chat through some of this stuff and thankful for people like yourself who are spending your time spending your energy i know how much goes into building a, a podcast and building a community like this oh, yeah. so um definitely thankful for that and, and just thankful for the chance to to talk about monero talk about personal privacy and these topics that i think are oh did we lose them oh i think we might have lost them well let's see there he is <laughs> sorry <laughs> all right no worries all right we'll make sure and go hit in that uh like button hit the subscribe button that's honestly the best thing you could do uh if you're on rumble hit the uh the, the rumble button um pretty much wherever you are make sure to share this uh get it out there make sure to subscribe so you can make sure and know when we're going live when we've got new episodes uh just recently uh if anyone has a roku uh, big announcement here. I actually am part, I am a contributor to regional crime television now. It is a app that you can find on the Roku and it is all Liberty-based content. So you can make sure and check out the interviews um, such as this one there. Um, there's also going to uh, start being exclusive content strictly for the regional prime television watchers. So make sure and go check that out if you have a Roku. Uh, and there's a bunch of other big announcements we've got coming down the pipeline. So pretty much just stay tuned. And uh, until next time, stay free, my friends.